the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked, for the day of doom. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The sermon this morning is drawn from the psalm we just sang, Psalm 33. And Psalm 33 begins with its stinger, if you will. If you're looking for the command, if you're looking for uh, what the Holy Spirit wants you to walk away and do from this portion of Scripture, it is found in the very beginning verses of it. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. That's actually a command. It's a bidding, of course. The singer is inviting us to rejoice, but he's also commanding it. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. There's a lot of joy, a lot of happiness there, and God commands it. The reason why he commands it is because it is, quote, beautiful. The implications of that statement should be much more heavy upon us than we at first would consider. We live in a world where the concept of beauty has been declared subjective. According to the current doctrine of the world, according to the current philosophy, there is no such thing as beauty. It it doesn't really exist. Beauty, they say, is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, That's why you've seen a total change in architecture. Uh, If Caleb Miles were here, I'd get an amen from that. Uh, It's why art has changed. It's why song has changed. It's why popular culture has changed. There's no such thing as beauty, the world tells us. And how can it be? Because the world doesn't acknowledge that there is a ground of being. There is a foundation that all thinking and truth is built upon. The world doesn't acknowledge a ground of being. So therefore, you can't have beauty, really. Beauty is just a personal taste. But we are, quote, the righteous. We are, quote, the upright. Those terms are loaded theological terms. They are terms that are used for people who are in covenant with God. Righteousness means to be in a right standing, in a right place. Being upright means to be morally correct, to be virtuous. None of us are inherently that perfectly. But we are in God, in Christ. We are his covenant people. And those titles do belong to us because we are in Christ. We've been taken into him. 
God sees his righteousness. God sees his uprightness. We are the righteous. We are the upright. And for us, nothing could be more different than the world. The world says beauty is something of your own construct. The the word of God says there is a beauty to be had. It's real. It's objective. There are some things that are beautiful, some things that aren't. And the inherent beauty of the upright, the inherent beauty of the righteous, praising God is objectively beautiful, says the psalm. God says what is beautiful. God says what is lovely. And there is nothing more lovely, nothing more beautiful than joyful covenant children praising their God, lifting him on high. That's beautiful. And we are called to do that with various instruments. We are called to do that loudly in this first three verses. We're told to shout it while we're playing it. Um, we're called to sing a new song. I don't know if you follow the Babylon Bee, but this week one of the articles was God rejects writing, sing to the Lord a new song after hearing the songs that the Christian church has in fact been recently singing. Um, There's some humor in that. And actually, many, many times in the Psalms, when you read sing to the Lord a new song, uh, God has mentioned the Psalms right before that and has told us to sing the Psalms. And then we're told to sing a new song The context being not that we are inventing a new song, but that because we've been changed by the grace of God, our singing becomes new because we experience what the song is talking about. So it becomes a new song to us. That's the case in several psalms. However, this profound truth kind of requires a wordplay and requires that the singing of a new song sometimes would mean singing a new song. Otherwise, the profundity of the other songs talking about our lives being different and therefore changing the song uh, wouldn't have the impact. And here in Psalm 33, uh, the emphasis seems to be on literally sing to God a new song. There's a emphasis in the first three verses on using your creativity to bring to God joyful worship. Now, worship that meets his pattern, of course, this is not advocating inventing worship to God, but it is advocating bringing your entire gifts and graces to bear on praising God, glorifying him, thanking him, specifically in a joyful way. Your entire being is commanded by the Spirit in this psalm to glorify God creatively. Uh, There are reasons for it. The psalmist doesn't just end his petition at verse 3, but he begins to tell us why should the righteous and the upright praise God? Well, uh, the answer begins with because his word is right. You would think that as Protestant Christians, Christians who God has brought into existence through the Reformation, that would kind of be a no-dust statement, and I could make it, and you would say, yes, God's word is right. That is a godly thing, and it is a gift to the righteous, and then we could move on. 
But we actually are existing at a time where in the very Protestant church, the church that began with sola scriptura as its founding principle, practically, uh, you have many voices disagreeing with the psalmist. The psalmist brings forth its, his first reason for praising God as the word of God is right. And the Hebrew word means right. It's a good translation. The word of God is correct in what it says. The word of God is healthy. The word of God brings blessing. It's all kind of encoded into that word. The psalmist says, be joyful and praise God because God's word is right. It is good. It is, it is of the essence of goodness. And Protestant leaders say no. Pastors of thousand member churches are going on record saying uh, the Bible is a tack on to the faith. The Bible is a hindrance to the faith. The Bible uh, needs to be put aside so that religion can continue. It is the exact opposite of the call of God. When the psalmist is brought by the Spirit to consider why we should be joyful and praise him, the very first thing the Spirit brings to his mind is the word of God is right. When God speaks, it is true. When God speaks, it is eternal. When God speaks, it is health for the soul. Why should you be joyful in God? Well, the first thing is God talks to you. God has condescended to write you a book. His word that has been distilled from the prophets, his word is right. It is true. And the psalmist says rejoice. He then goes on to what God is doing in the world. The next thing is the actions that God is performing in creation this very moment. In verse 4 through 7, we read this. For the word of, God, of the Lord is right and all his work is done in truth. Uh, it pictures God working even now. Now, he's resting on the, the eighth day from his work of creating, but he is not resting from his work of doing things. God is very active in the world. He is he's doing works, and specifically, they are done in truth. And the word has at its essence the idea of a faithful covenant keeper. God has entered into a covenant with someone, and you know who that is. Ultimately, it's Christ, but we are in Christ, so God is in covenant with us. God has spoken his word. It's totally right and true and good. And not only that, God is working in reality, this very moment, doing things. And what he is doing, he is doing for the sake of the covenant that he is in. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. If you are a unbeliever and you are convinced that God doesn't exist and you should hate him, uh, one of the things you will bring up is the fact that the earth is filled with terrible things. And you won't be wrong. The earth actually is filled with many terrible things. There is a worm in West Coast Africa that exists solely by eating eyeballs. That's the diet it has. 
and it gets into your eyeballs and it eats your eyeball. And if you are an unbeliever, you will point to that and say, if that exists, how can there be a God? You know? Well, the answer to that is fairly simple. When you go back to the beginning of scripture, you've got God cursing the earth. The curse is all around us, and you can point to things that are obviously the curse. But if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, for everything that is a manifestation of God's curse, there is a preponderance of things which testify to God's goodness. The world is filled with joy and happiness. The world is filled with the, the gifts of provision that this world gives to us. This world is filled with the presence of God. This world is filled with his renewing the earth generation after generation. This world is filled with the activity of God, and that's really the context of the verse. God is working in the world all around us, and it's for the blessing of his covenant. Uh, we should rejoice in that. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a deist? And a lot of people are functionally deists. A deist believes that God created the world kind of like a clockmaker would make a clock. And he has set it into place, and everything is kind of running the way he wants it to run, but he is not involved in it in any way. He is sitting back, he is watching the clock tick. He may even, in fact, be satisfied with his work, but he's not working with it anymore. There are millions of people who view God in that way, but the scriptures don't. The scriptures view God as being intimately active in the world day in and day out. Uh, how you describe that tends to be a shibboleth for what denomination you're in. If we were Pentecostals, we would talk about, you know, angels kept me from getting run over today. Uh, you know, God's angels and his spirit are at work in the world. We're Reformed Christians, so we usually use the a little bit more dignified term providence. But when we use the term providence, what are we talking about other than God is at work in his world, doing things supernaturally day in and day out? The psalmist calls us to praise God, to rejoice in that fact. The world is filled with God's providence. And why has he spoken what is right? Why is he at work covenantally? Well, it's because he loves, according to verse 5, righteousness and justice. The terms talk about the world being in a right order before God. Uh, things are uh, blessedly right. Things are just. It's obvious that the world isn't that way overall today. And again, the reason for that is sinful man rebelling in the garden, God cursing sinful man. All of that's foundational to scripture. But God's nature is such that he loves righteousness and he loves justice. Now, both of these terms have been highly tainted by their use in the political world. Uh, you go out of these walls and you'll say you believe in justice. Uh, the world would hear that as you believe in depravity because they have made depravity and justice synonymous. In the Bible, that's not the case at all. In the Bible, justice 
is manifested in the moral law of God. It, it's crystallized in the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's crystallized in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but justice as a concept, it's very godly and very biblical. And God loves that. The fact that God has cursed the earth is not where God wants it to stay. God actually loves things being righteous. He loves events being just. And God speaks to his covenant people. God is at work in the world recreating that. It is his desire that that be recreated. Um, One of the things that really motivates post-millennial people like me is an understanding that God actually wants to redeem his creation. It is on his heart. He, he wants the goodness of God to permeate creation like salt, like light, like leaven. Um, I'm not saying our, our Christian brothers and sisters who are post-millennial don't believe in that. But for us, it's kind of a driving force. We believe that that is on God's heart. And here the psalmist agrees with us. God speaks, God acts specifically to bring these things into existence. And not only that, he loves righteousness and he loves justice so much, he literally created creation to be the stage where that will take place. Right after the psalmist tells us that God loves these things and he's at work, uh, in verse 6 and 7 we read, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. If you believe that the doctrine of divine creation is just a matter of the first two chapters of Genesis, you are utterly incorrect. The doctrine of creation is all the way through God's word everywhere, and it's usually used in this kind of format. Um, It's foundational to the covenant. When you read the history that the Bible presents, The Bible doesn't present every event that happens in human history. It couldn't. But its goal is to present every significant covenantal event that God does. And it begins with God creating literally everything because that is a covenantal event. God spreads out creation into existence because in creation is where God is going to relate to his covenant people. It's where Christ is going to redeem them. It is where God the Father is going to give to his Son all the nations. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. The peoples of the earth will be yours. Um, There has to be a stage upon which that happens, and that's why the psalmist brings that up right after he tells us God is at work doing stuff because he loves righteousness and justice. This is where that happens, and that's why he created everything out of nothing 6,000 years ago. It was to lay the stage for this great drama upon which we actually now walk. And this is all presented as why you should be joyful in the Lord, why you should rejoice and praise him. And they are powerful reasons for praise. They are powerful reasons for rejoicing in any circumstance, at any time. 
in fact, when you read a psalm in particular, one of the important questions to ask is, in what event is the psalm written? What, why, why did the writer of it write it? Now, the answer is the Holy Spirit inspired him, but what, what historical event caused it? In this particular psalm, um, it's probably a moment of great conflict and pressure. Otherwise, God wouldn't be said to be, quote, bringing the counsel of the nations to nothing, making their plans of no effect. They have plans and they have counsels and they're trying to do evil things. And usually the target of those evil things are God's people. There is a desire to destroy the kingdom of God off the earth. That's why they do what they do. The kings of the earth take their stand. The peoples gather together. They enter into council against the Lord, against his Christ. That seems to be the kind of environment the psalm comes out of. And the flesh would say, we're under attack. The very first thing we should do is grab the sword, grit the teeth, be prepared for battle, enter into anger, go into combat mode. So I'm not saying anything about not doing that. But the very first thing it calls us to is rejoice in the Lord. Be joyful in him. Let your heart leap for joy at who he is because of who he is. He has created all things. His word is absolutely true and assured. He is at work all around us. Let the world attempt to destroy the kingdom of God. They're going to anyway, so you might as well. But they're not going to succeed at destroying the kingdom of God because God will not allow it. So rejoice. Rejoice in the combat. Rejoice even when you are the church militant. God is worthy of our joy. He is worthy of our praise in the most pressurized moments of life. Now, the psalm could end at this point because you have a, a, a whole message there to the elect of God, to the people of God. But it doesn't end there. In fact, it, we're not even to the halfway point. As the music continues, the psalmist looks out across the world, across those nations that are standing against God. And there is a message for them, too. Um, it's in verse 8 and 9, and then also in 18 through 19. Let all the earth fear the Lord. And of course, the term fear refers to uh, treating God as your, sub, your, your king, you're his subject. It's a, a word of coming into obedience to God, coming into covenant with God. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Uh, we will go on to 18 and 19 in a second, but before we do that, we should really stop and savor this first section. Martin Luther saw the book of Psalms as a little Bible. In fact, he described it that way. The, the entirety of the Bible is in the book of Psalms. You'll get every doctrine of the Bible in the Psalms if you read them. Moderns have called that into question, and they've called it into question specifically over one issue. Jesus said to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, 
you know, the verses that I could add in here. You know them all. Um, they say you don't find that in Psalms. You find draw the sword, kill your enemy, that sort of thing. Uh, I would argue that they are missing the love your enemies. That is clearly here. What is love except as Christ would define it to treat your neighbor as you'd like to be treated, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, that sort of thing. All the way through the Psalms, not just here, but in many Psalms, the psalmist speaks out to the nations who are outside of God's covenant, and he invites them into it. He says, come to the Lord God of hosts who has made you. And in fact, there's going to be a theme of God making every person in the world, not just his elect people, in the psalm. God fashioned your heart individually, the psalm says. The Lord looks out from heaven to see every individual man. Come to the Lord. Fear him. In fact, fear him because you, the unconverted person, you, the person outside of the covenant, you know as well as I do that God created it out of nothing. The psalmist assumes that human flesh knows that. And he isn't wrong. I am a professor of religion, as you know. I teach world religions. Uh, the world is lacking any society that has no knowledge of the divine. That there has never been a human society anywhere in the world where there is a lack of knowledge of the divine. And that is always wrapped up in the existence of existence. Now, the understanding of the nature of that existence can be very different. A Hindu uh, views the world effectively as a negation, but he acknowledges it's there, and he answers the question, why is this negation in existence? Well, it's because Brahma is dreaming it. All the religions of the world begin with the question, why is there something here? It's intimate into the question of religion. The psalmist assumes the entire world has an innate understanding that existence has an origin, and it's God, and he's not wrong. I have met people who have told me I am an atheist. I do not believe there is a first cause. I have never met anyone who has convinced me that they actually are telling me the truth. Now, I've, I've met agnostics, and you know I think they exist, but I don't really believe in atheists. The psalmist doesn't either. He invites them to God. He invites them into the covenant of God. Come fear God. You know that God exists as well. And then I mentioned verse 18 and 19. This is directed to the person outside the covenant. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Not just on people who are currently in the covenant, but the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. That's said to the Babylonians, that's said to the Edomites, that's said to the Egyptians. The psalmist very much loves his neighbor as he loves himself. Because if you were outside of Israel and outside the covenant of God, if you were without hope and without Christ in the world, and you knew it, and you knew the implications of it, 
what would you want your neighbor to do for you? What, what above all things, if you really knew what this meant? Well, above all things, you'd want your neighbor to invite you into the covenant, to, to bring you to the Lord Christ, to bring you to salvation. That is your deepest need, and that's what the psalmist is doing. And so when we are told that the psalms lack love your neighbor as yourself, it's totally wrong. Because there is nothing more loving that you can do than invite those without hope and without God in the world to God in hope. And the psalmist is doing that. He is loving even these people who are causing this psalm to come into existence. He is inviting them into God's covenant because God will receive them. He will receive anyone who has faith in him, anyone who trusts in him. That's at the end of the psalm. That's the the invitation. Have faith in what God is doing. Come join us in having faith in what God is doing. There is this call to the nations. Although... Got to give it to the home team, even though the invitation is there. Uh, in in verse twelve, the psalmist turns back to those who are already in God's covenant and says, "Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He has chosen for His inheritance." If you are looking for blessing in this world, the only place to find it is in being his nation. Now, because of the word nation in our verse, there are those who would apply it to uh, secular nations, to the United States, to China, what have you. Uh, It's singular. It's talking about a nation. It's a people that fear the Lord, that are in covenant with him. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is over all rulers, over all men, and all the kingdoms of the world do belong to him. But there is one people that is the apple of his eye, one people who is his special possession, and that is those in covenant with him. This is not a promise that Ghana will be blessed when Ghana becomes a kingdom belonging to Christ. This is a promise to every person in Ghana who belongs to Christ, who is part of the people of God. And the psalmist extends the offer, but then he immediately has to return back to, but how blessed are we? God blesses his people. I can't get by the blessings God gives his people. God is so utterly good to that elect group of people that are his own. And he is also, though he is inviting the world into his covenant, he is also a terrible enemy, and that is presented here in the psalm too. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. Why? The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations And then we enter into, blessed is the people who belong to God. Um, It would be very easy for us to look at the wealth and power and might of those who would replace the king, 
which is, in fact, the secular nations of the world who want to be worshipped. Every state that has ever existed has desired worship. To look at these incredibly powerful entities and all their conniving and say, we are doomed. How can we stand up to that kind of power? How can we stand up to that kind of pressure? They have the horses. They have the spears. They have the swords. Everything this psalm will say later on, and that doesn't make for victory. But they all have it, and it will be very easy for our hearts to quail. I mean, you're watching right now where you've got the secular powers that be throwing pro-life people in jail just to send us a message. We can get a hold of you and charge you with conspiracy, lock you in a hole for forever. Our plans will stand. We will design society the way we want it. God speaks to that and says, your plans mean nothing. If those kind of people could have worked their will and made it stand, it would already be. There have been 6,000 years of despots and tyrants, of persecutors and men that would be worshipped. Where are they now? Where are their nations? God says, my plans will stand, not yours. And thus far, it's God one, nation zero. 6,000 years. God bids those outside in, but while they're out, they're his enemy. And let them have the power, it will come to nothing. Just like we read in the Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 16, um, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, though they join forces, none will go unpunished. God's message to the powerful, to the proud, here in our psalm, here in the Proverbs, uh, but blessed is those whose God is the Lord. Those who are righteous and upright, his power can be seen by them. It is felt by them. Um, the Proverbs tell us that commit your way to the Lord, it'll be established. God has a hand that can do all things. Nothing can be said of God. You can't do that. The psalmist revels in that. When he starts talking about a horse is a vain hope for victory and that sort of thing, he is pointing us to the hand of God. In the military, there is a saying, uh, God's on the side of those who have the largest battalions. It's simply not true. God is on the side of those who are the righteous. He is on the side of those who are the upright. His plans will stand we will experience his plans. Uh, God knows every human, and he looks over the battlements of heaven at every person. Uh, listen, to, listen to verse 13 through 15. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men, all of them. Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, uh, they are far from him, 
They are engaged in satanic worship, but that doesn't mean God doesn't see them. God is looking from heaven at them from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. There is a certain universality that we Christians do believe in. We we get attacked for the fact that we believe in exclusivity, and we do. True Christianity believes that there is a dividing wall between all humanity. That wall is, are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? But there is a certain universality that we do believe in. We believe that all men, regardless of who they think they are and where they think they stand, they actually stand before the Lord. He shaped and molded their hearts from the very beginning. He sees them, no matter where they are, no matter who they are, God is the God of all mankind. And he is there to be received by those who seek him for mercy. As the psalm comes to an end, the psalm begins to use covenantal language Uh, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Well, didn't we just get told that God's eye is on everybody and not everybody fears him? Well, yes, but the phrase God's eye is on those who fear him means God is looking out specifically to bless them. His eye is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, or as we sang the psalm, his covenantal faithfulness, because the word is a said, which is what that word means. God is looking specifically on those who are in his said with him. He will, quote, deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait for the full fulfillment of that. The psalm comes to an end with these words. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him. And you'll notice the psalmist began with uh, an emphasis on rejoicing. He's ending with it. Uh, Our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, your chesed, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. The psalmist can rejoice in the present because he is absolutely assured of God's faithfulness in the future world without end. When the psalmist uses the phrase, we who trust in him, we trust in him to deliver our souls from death, and we will rejoice because uh, we have trust in his holy name. The term soul means the whole man. It means the body and the spirit united. If the psalmist had simply said, we trust in the Lord because he will deliver us in battle, he would be talking about a temporal victory briefly. But the psalmist says, we trust in the Lord with our souls, with the unity of our body and spirits, and he will deliver us from death. This is a promise of eternal life, and it's a promise that comes at the end of history. Uh, The psalmist is so caught up in rejoicing in God 
he can't keep his view on the enemy. He goes immediately to the day of judgment, to the resurrection of the dead. He goes immediately to when all God's promises will come to fulfillment. And he states, we will rejoice then because he has kept all of his promises. Because that is 100% sure, we will rejoice now. Uh, this is a psalm totally rooted in faith, in trust. And that word gets used at the beginning, it gets used at the end. Um, the nations that oppose God, they can become redeemed by him, but they have to do it in faith. We are in faith. We know his promises. He will keep them all. As you are aware, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus promised us that all the scriptures are about him. And he called out the book of Psalms in particular. He said, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Um, where do we find our Lord Christ in this psalm? Well, we find him in, we trust in what God is doing and his word is right. And we will rejoice in all he is doing in faith. Not all the Psalms are about Jesus in the same way. Jesus is what God is doing in the world, and it's what God was doing in the world the moment that the fall happened. The moment that mankind is in rebellion to God, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. Uh, God has been doing that in history from Genesis 3.15 onward. And when we are called by the psalmist to rejoice in God because his word is true, what's his word about? Well, it's about Jesus from beginning to end. Uh, it's about Jesus in Leviticus. It's about Jesus in the book of Ruth. It's about Jesus in First Chronicles. Uh, when we rejoice in God working in the world to bring about justice and righteousness uh, where does justice and righteousness happen well it only happens in jesus christ if you are looking for an estate of righteousness or justice in this world and you're looking anywhere else but in christ and his kingdom you won't find it anywhere so if we are rejoicing in a god who is doing things to bring righteousness and justice to existence we are rejoicing in Jesus, because otherwise it doesn't happen. Uh, we looked this morning in Zechariah at the promises given to, quote, Jerusalem. And they were promises given to Jerusalem. They were promises of peace and prosperity. But they were also promises that God would dwell among them again, and that the city would be so blessed that it would be like heaven if, if I were a Jew, if I were someone who had rejected the Lord Christ, I would be very confused right now because the prophet told me God will be in my midst in Jerusalem, and yet the Shekinah glory never returned there. Well, the Shekinah glory did. It was Jesus Christ. He came to the temple. He declared himself the true temple. He is for us the temple of God, and he is among us. He is what builds the actual Jerusalem, which is the people of God, 
Every promise of God finds their fulfillment in him. We can rejoice that God is building the kingdom of Jesus. We can be absolutely assured that kingdom will be built and we will be brought in it. We can invite the world into that kingdom because that kingdom is real and sure. Um, This psalm only finds its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any catechism work that needs to be done at this time? 